Hey, welcome back. It's Sound Group Podcast for the final of six episodes from 2018. Yep, it's the sixth and last of this wonderful year here on uh, the first full year on notthepublicbroadcaster.com. Kind of really started doing that partway through 2017, hosting it there as well as my own blog page, musicofheavensmind.blogspot.com. So this is the last one, but it's part two of a theme that I started in the last episode, which you may or may not have heard. And the theme was called Come Fly With Me, and it's about songs of taking flight through the air, travel through whether it might be plane or rocket ship, into space, in through the atmosphere, you know, into the skies, whatever it may be. Man has always longed and dreamed to fly, and of course in the last hundred plus years that's become a reality. And it's also spawned some pretty cool songs that... Uh, sort of allude to or discuss that as subject material. And in the first one, I played a plethora of good tunes that I feel captured that, with whether it be through title or through the actual uh, lyrical content. And uh, I'm going to give you a handful more, and you're going to really enjoy them, hopefully, on this part two of Come Fly With Me theme, the final one of 2018. So I am Evan Dobigan, and I would like to kick things off with a track from a very experimental Artist from his time who did a lot of more instrumental music, but at the start did stuff with vocals after leaving the band Roxy Music, and that's Brian Eno, a uh, self-professed non-musician who really didn't know how to play a lot of stuff. He became savvy and technologically sound with certain equipment and became a synthesizer slash tape effects specialist when he joined that group. Brian Ferry and later Phil Manzanera and Andy McKay and all those people... And um, he left after their second album to go solo, and his first record was a pretty influential one called Here Come the Warm Jets. And the second one was called Taking Tiger Mountain by, by Strategy. And that's the album that had this track from 1974 called Burning Airlines Give You So Much More, which uh, makes reference to a 1974 plane crash near Paris of a Turkish Airlines DC-10. And uh, also has a little bit of uh, reference, like a lot of songs on the album, to the Chinese Communist Revolution and stuff. It's sort of a loose theme throughout the album, in fact. Even the title really kind of uh, alludes to it. But uh, Eno was a little more bouncy and upbeat on this one than the first album. And he was really getting his production career going, you know, because of his uh, understanding of the recording studio, which he had really soaked up in Roxy Music's early years. He uh, started doing work with other people and his own albums he would do on the side. And he's really been known for a lot of his production work over the years. I mean, he's produced a lot of people from David Bowie to Talking Heads to U2, you name it. And so that's the track I'm going to play for you here. We'll listen to Brian Eno, or sometimes shortened just to Eno, with his 1974 song. And the Sound Group Podcast, Burning Airlines Give You So Much More. Here it is. Imagine her 
There you go, Brian Eno with Burning Airlines give you so much more. And uh, you can hear really his experimental sensibilities in that one. Kind of like a really on the vanguard of art rock, progressive rock in the UK at the time with a few other luminaries. You know, his old friends in the uh, band Rocky Music, John Cale, Kevin Ayers, Vandergraaff Generator. And they're kind of more on the artsy side of things, whereas you had the kind of like one talking about Forest and Knights of the Round Table, sort of more geeky sci-fi type stuff with groups like uh, Genesis and um, Yes or whatever, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Curved Air, Gentle Giant, and the list goes on. Not as familiar with some of those bands as others, but uh, getting it. I'm getting to see a few of the, the merits of other ones. I mean, some prog rock at its worst is very tedious music that kind of supposedly spawned the hatred uh, from punks and everything late in the 70s. And, but Eno and a few others were able to retain a little bit of uh, credit because they were willing to experiment. They were willing to listen to and incorporate and try different things. So, I mean, the people who were trashing it, who were punky kind of guys coming out of uh, that scene, I mean, maybe not really punk rock like the Talking Heads, they really uh, admired Eno, and he became hotly in demand throughout his career for you know, not just his own work, but for his production abilities. So, anyway, let's move on to a new artist and a new song. This is a band critically regarded in the early 70s, but really not well known today. There was no resurgence or some kind of retrospective look back that got them a lot of fame. And that's a band called Joy of Cooking. Now, they were kind of maybe a little hippie because they sang about feminist themes a little bit and their albums were sort of loose and communal. But great musicianship. It wasn't as if they were just sort of sloppy and they were uh, amateurs. They were unique in that they were led by two women in terms of their main songwriting. Uh, you had, uh, and they had kind of, you know, man names sort of confuse you a little bit, like more typical first names for men, but they can be women's names too. I'm talking about Tony Brown, the pianist, who was a really good jazzy barrel house kind of player, and the guitarist Terry Garthwaite. And uh, her brother's in the band, and a drummer named Fritz Kasten, and Ron Wilson, and Steve Roseman was in the band for a period of time. Anyway, they, they kind of mixed a lot of rock, blues, folk, jazz, and a lot of the stuff sounded a bit, you know, uh, maybe retro, maybe a little bit of stride and uh, honky-tonk and ragtime, but still, at its core, very bluesy, unique for its time, really not just bluesy for the sake of being kind of, oh yeah, man, cool, we're getting street cred playing like, you know, black blues guys music now. It was kind of out there a little more and took some risks and wasn't weighed down or made to be gimmicky by the fact that two women were leaders in that band and stuff. And this is a track off their second album. All their albums are pretty good, especially the first one. This is the second release of theirs from 1971 called Closer to the Ground. It was their second album in 1971, too. And uh, they, had a, they had one more after before disbanding, but they really were overlooked and should have maybe gotten a better fair shake. I, I don't know. Lots Lost amidst the uh, poor record distribution and 
just a cluttered sea of bands that were trying similar things, just not nearly as well as I think maybe you would agree with me. They pull off that sound. Here it is, anyhow. Enough talking. Let's get to the joy of cooking with a song of theirs from 1971 called Pilot here on the Sound of Group Podcast. Yeah, there was Pilot from Joy of Cooking back in 1971. Some funky mamas on that particular track. You could you could also, uh, that was a Terry Garthwaite was the one who wrote that song, the guitarist, but the piano really with Tony Brown is what takes center stage. You can hear just what a uh, rollicking um, sort of throwback to the uh, pine top barrel house kind of days that was. A little bit of boogie woogie there, I guess you could say. And also the vocals uh, kind of, Reminiscent of Janis Joplin, who passed away the year before that, anyhow, but a little more restrained, a little less shouty, a little less wild and uninhibited, pretty, a little more, you know, relaxed and uh, sensuous kind of uh, vocal style, I would say. So you can really get a gist of it there, of uh, what that band was about. They, they were not just that kind of, you know, you couldn't just pigeonhole them in that pocket. They had a lot of other sides of them, but that's a great track right there. And using, you know, the whole flying up into the sky thing as a metaphor for meeting up with a man who can, you know, treat her right and 
satisfy her, that kind of thing. That's pretty cool, the little lyrical allegory, I would say. And it works with the theme, the come fly away with me thing, in a different way. I mean, talking about being a pilot and taking her, taking her up in the sky and stuff like that as a as, um, you know, metaphor, not bad. And uh, it doesn't have to actually talk about really going you know, up in the air and flying like you're Maverick from Top Gun or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of flying and taking a uh, plane to get from point A to point B, how about a song about taking one overnight? Uh, it's called Night Flight, and it's by Led Zeppelin. And this is one of the lesser known but still stellar tracks off their deep, of course, because it's double album, 1975 release, Physical Graffiti, which came about when Led Zeppelin was looking for, you know, to put out two albums in one, give them a chance to make up for not putting out one in 1974. So they recorded a bunch of new tracks, but also you know, raided the vaults for stuff that had been left off their first... I don't know if they went back all the way to their sessions for their first album, but there are tracks here that were left off of things as early as Led Zeppelin 3, and of course Led Zeppelin 4, and Houses of the Holy. So you've got a collection of uh, cutting room floor stuff that was pretty damn good, and then uh, a bouquet of new tracks that were pretty... Uh, they, they didn't stand up to the greatest stuff that they had done by, to that point. It wasn't as... I think it was a little more modestly done. They just went for some more straight-up funk tracks, a little hard rock, nothing too fancy, nothing too experimental. There was no Stairway to Heaven here. But uh, I guess their most ambitious track in the album was Kashmir, of course, with the strings and trying to be Middle Eastern, trying to be Indian. Uh, other than that, there are some really uh, sort of modest tracks. And it shows the wide breadth of the band better than any other because it's, there's not many weak tracks and it's a double album, so that really helps. And uh, coming out in 1975, they uh, they were they didn't really have a chance to put out more things, so they went back to the vaults because Robert Plant was in a car accident in Greece while holidaying with his family, kind of set them back to either perform live or put out new material. They eventually did get into the recording studios with Plant still recuperating to record their 1976 album, Presence. But this one here, uh, looking back and getting some older tracks, was a fairly well-received one for Led Zeppelin, and their only double album, studio album anyway, that they put out in their existence. So let's get right to it, huh, on this Come Fly With Me Part 2 podcast. Here's Night Flight by Led Zeppelin, released in 1975, here on the Santa Groove podcast. I received a message from my
Yeah, Night Flight by Led Zeppelin here on the Sound Group Podcast. There's slices of Led Zeppelin's ability to be funky, to be a little more serious. Uh, of course, you got the pile-driving drums of John Bonham uh, underneath it all, propelling the song along, and Robert Plant is in fine form. Just another one of the many sort of uh, nuggets that you find on physical graffiti that grow on you after a while. It's just a uh, deep, um, rewarding album. At first listen, you think sound like they were throwaways or filler, but that's really not the case, actually, even though it's a long album. There are very few missteps for a band that's put out, I don't know how many tracks. I, th- I think it's not as long as most double albums. There's about 15 tracks, and they can only fit a certain amount of vinyl at the time, but Led Zeppelin tended to go a little long. They may have overdone it on a few tracks in terms of the length, like In My Time of Dying, we do like an 11-minute version of that, and In the Light, which is over 8 minutes. Casimir is almost 8 minutes, um, which, which deserves to be. It deserves to be a long epic that way. The other two, not so much. So it's not perfect that way. It's not one of their masterpieces compared to, in my opinion, um, Led Zeppelin 4 or uh, even Houses of the Holy. But it is still among the whatever it was they put out seven eight studio albums in the top half for sure um and they didn't really do a bad album even though some people say in through the outdoor wasn't very good but anyway we'll uh, we'll move on from discussing the merits of every studio album by led zeppelin and get to a guy who didn't have nearly the kind of arena rock superstardom in the 70s but did put out rewarding and interesting and cutting edge material whether anyone was listening or not and it's a guy named peter hamill and he emerged in the late 60s and uh he 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 uh Married a solo career with a career as a leader, principal writer, and singer of a band called Vandergraaf Generator, which I referred to earlier as a prog rock giant. And they were on a label called Charisma Records that also had Genesis and a few other acts of that particular uh, genre for a while. And they broke up after making a few albums, and Hamill uh, focused solely on his solo career and put up like an album per year on average, maybe more. He put out albums per year, you know, each one or one each year, I should say, through to the 90s. Very prolific, busy kind of recording artist, and Vandergraaf um, Generator reformed mid-2000s and still makes material. They also reformed a few years after their original breakup in 1975, and uh, the first uh, glimpse of that was that the lineup that had reformed recorded this album with Peter Hamill and uh, worked on it with him. So it was pretty much like a Vandergraaf Generator album, but here, you know, or Vandergraaf, I guess you want to be a little more... Uh, English about pronouncing it, perhaps, or Americanize it a bit. But, uh, you know, the, this this guy has put out... I'm just getting into him now, so I'm putting it out here so you can all see what I mean. He he puts out sort of, like, weepy ballads and then stuff that's very theatrical, the British accent. It sounds like the kind of horror plays, you know, oh, the someone has been killed. Ah. I'm not as crazy about that side, but slowly but surely, mid-70s, there's this punk side developed where he said his sort of, like, um, theatrical wailing vocals and histronics with uh, some anger and some blood and, you know, some real gravitas or a growling voice to it as well. And this isn't one of those tracks. This is more of the softer side that he was capable of that is not too bad either that I really uh, have gotten to admire as well. And it's a track from his fifth solo album in 1975. It was called Nadir's Big Chance. We're going to play it. It's called Airport. So let's take a listen to the work of Peter Hamill here on the Sound of Guru podcast right now. I stand on the tallest building and stare down at the gray runway And the tail smoke of the Boeing jet that's taking you so far away Believe me, I don't want you to leave me 
Okay, from Airport by Peter Hamill, which I would say, more than almost any song that I picked for this episode and the previous one of this theme, accurately describes the whole process of travel, you know, the uh, takeoffs and landings and going through baggage, you know, all that other stuff. He's just sort of using it as a description for the rigors of travel, how it may seem like such a dream, but it's really difficult to do. At the same time, you know, be, being a jet setter can be a little tiring, can drain on you even though you know you have to stop back stop step back and consider once in a while how amazing you live it is that you live in an age where you can do this sort of thing i guess but anyway from that sort of serene number from one of his many many solo albums we're gonna transition to something a little more simple a little more rudimentary country kind of song it's a cover though and it's country rock phase of the birds that we're dealing with here and that's the band who's covering it a song called deportees Plane Wreck at Los Gatos, which is a 19, based on a 1948 plane crash of a DC-3 that was carrying uh, migrant workers, uh, various, various people, but migrant workers mostly, and some illegal immigrants being deported. And uh, Woody Guthrie saw the headlines in the newspaper and read about it and kind of took issue with the fact they were just referred to as deportees and were not given, you know, by name, were not listed by name and everything like that. And he decided to you know, write a poem with names in there, kind of like a tribute, um, a solemn farewell to these people who lost their lives. And it turned into a song eventually, and one of his many uh, well-covered, well-known and remembered tunes, in fact, that has had several people cover it. A lot of people in the country rock vein, too, and or in country in general. And the Birds were in that phase, like I said, in 1969 when they their album Ballad of Easy Rider. This is on. I mean, it's not as pure a country album as, say, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which I did a year before when Graham Parsons was in the group briefly. He was gone by this point, had formed his own band with their bassist Chris Hillman called the Flying Burrito Brothers. But uh, Roger McGuinn had reconvened the birds with a lot of other musicians, had turned the lineup over. At this point, it was just 
of the original members that started in 1964 was only him. So it was hardly like, you know, the birds that people knew and loved from just a few years earlier. But uh, critics were still kind to their country rock phase, and this was a stellar cover of a Woody Guthrie classic. And that's what I've picked out here for us to listen to as the next track here on the Sonic Group Podcast. So from 1969, let's listen to the birds covering Woody Guthrie's Deportees Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. The crops are all in and the beaches are rotting. The oranges are packed in their creosote. You're flying them back to the Mexican border to spend all their money. There was the Birds 1969 cover of Deportee. I gave it a plural uh, form. Somebody, sometimes people have covered it and done that, but uh, the real track, the real writing of it is Deportee, singular. And uh, the subtitle, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. Yes, like I said, based on a real plane crash from January 20th, 1948, it was a DC-3 carrying mostly Mexican farm laborers. It crashed in the Los Gatos, not the actual town, but a uh, canyon that was 20 miles west of Colinga, California. So in, uh, I guess that's Fresno County. And uh, like I uh, said, uh, Woody Guthrie read this and lamented that they were not listed by name and that many, most of them were not identified. Of course, you know, the stewardesses and the first officer and the pilots and all those people who were on it um, that were documented. Everybody, you know, knew their names after the incident happened. 
So anyhow, that uh, particular uh, raising awareness track that Woody Guthrie would often do, being very involved in social causes uh, over the course of his famous folk career, uh, that was later popularized by Pete Seeger, and then through that, a lot of other people heard it and got to know it, and a lot of rock stars and country musicians and stuff have covered it over the years, too. Kind of one of her, one, and ends up being one of his most well-traveled songs, I guess you could call it, right? Anyway, uh, that one fits with our little flight theme, although in kind of a sad, negative way compared to some of the other songs, but that's okay. We're covering the gamut of songs from Come Fly With Me here, uh, the... Part two of that theme on the Sound of Groove podcast here with Evan Dobigan. Touching base again with a few more tracks left to go. And now this one, it's kind of also about flying. It's about traveling. Um, long distances, of course, like international flight, <laughs> in a way. And it uh, ends up, it's not really a song just about that, you know, plane travel and everything and, you know, the hustle bustle of, of airline uh, transportation. No, no, no. Not that so much like the last couple songs. But kind of more about uh, traveling to a completely different country. And of course, at this time, it was a completely different world in that it was the Soviet Union. It was communist, the USSR, as it was known for short. And of course, Paul McCartney, who wrote the song called Back in the USSR for the Beatles, 1968, thought it would be funny if, you know, he talked about, oh, I really would like to be back. You know, kind of like California Girls by the Beach Boys talked about how they like the girls all over the United States, but the best ones are where they're from in California. They wish... They wish, all, but on the other hand, you know, they wish all the girls around the United States that they love could be in California at the same time. But uh, he thought it'd be funny if we, you know, there was a song that talked about it, <laughs> as if all the girls back in the USSR, all the various states, right, Georgia, and I think he mentions that, and, uh, you know, the girls of Moscow and stuff like that. He decides to make it a bit of a parody of surf music, right? So you got this Beach Boys type number. And somehow the Beatles, you know, this was Paul McCartney when he was in the group, could make his little more lightweight excursions work out because the other two guys in the group could maybe set it straight, which wasn't the case as much when his musical foils ended up being Denny Lane and his wife Linda in the wings. And then Paul's worst tendencies tended to get uh, not ironed out, I guess you would say. It tended to everything he liked to throw at the wall and see if it stick, stuck actually did, uh, and some of it wasn't very good. But anyhow, this is the lead cut on the Beatles' famed self-titled 1968 release, their only double LP studio album, which was all white design, was about as basic as it could get, coming in the wake of the colorful and goofy covers, to an extent, of Magical Mystery Tour and uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, their, their previous two releases. It was just all white with plain gray writing on it, although originally it was in uh, sort of like raised writing, you know, like braille kind of thing on the original release, so it was all white. And usually the Beatles inscription was one you could really you could put your hands over and stuff. You could feel, uh, rather than being imprinted on the actual uh, label. So this was the first tra- track on what ended up being a 30-track album or something, double album, the White Album, because of its ridiculously basic white design. And it was iconic in that way that it was so minimal, right? It was so minimalistic. But anyway, this song here, uh, you know, Take a listen to it. It's really Beach Boys-esque, and Paul McCartney actually plays drums on it because I believe Ringo quit the band at the stage that they were recording this album. He did come back eventually, but anyhow. So it starts off with a jet engine noise, too, which really adds to the theme. So let's take a listen. How to 1968's The Beatles with Back in the USSR.
in the USSR. Beatles with back in the USSR, their tongue-in-cheek tribute to uh, surf songs to the Beach Boys, especially during the chorus part where John Lennon does his best Brian Wilson falsetto there in the background. <laughs> you have a little bit of the Mike Love bass voice going on from, I think Paul might be dubbing that one in over under his lead vocals. And of course, uh, be, being illegal, rock music at the time in the USSR, I think long hair was illegal until the 70s there even, this uh, made the rounds underground and a lot of the nationalities of the Soviet Union uh, that were uh, getting these underground recordings of Beatles albums illegally uh, felt uh, to be a tribute. They actually really enjoyed it. And of course, you know, so it kind of became, I think Paul McCartney later, he did a Russian-only release, or maybe it was still, yeah, it was still USSR in the late 80s, of uh, a covers album, actually, Rockabilly 50s music covers album called Back in the USSR, in fact. Later it came out, and I think three years later in the rest of the world, but originally it was only that as sort of like a tribute to them when you know, the, they were opening up to the West, and he decided to do this as a little gift to the longtime Beatles fans who at one point there had to hide the fact they owned any Beatles music. So, let's move on. Now, I know a couple tracks ago I did Deportee, which was about a plane wreck, a real, based on a real event that Woody Guthrie chronicled. And now, uh, this one here, it's a little more dramatization of something that really happened. It's a track by the wonderful Southern Rock band from the last 15, 20 years. It's really been tremendous... Uh, influence on a lot of others that came after, I would say, in that genre, but that you may not know about. The Drive-By Truckers, they helped launch careers of guys like Jason Isbell and stuff, too. They did an album that was kind of based on the themes of the South, but they also kind of loosely based it on the career, the rise and fall of the band Leonard Skinner, who, of course, you know, when they were getting to a new level of fame, unfortunately, members of the group were killed in a plane crash out in, I think, while they were on tour. And, of course, this album was called Southern Rock Opera from 2001. The Drive-By Truckers put out. It's a double album, very ambitious. They cover a lot of uh, aspects of the 1970s and all seen through the context of Skinnerd. And uh, they basically decided to make a lot of tracks sort of about little uh, stories, personal stories of uh, people in the group. 
Like the backup singer, Cassie Gaines, who was one of the people who passed away, her, she and her brother died in that crash, as well as lead singer Ronnie Van Zant. And near the end is when we get to a song that's very sedate, very emotionally uh, reserved, but moving at the same time, called Angels and Fuselage. It's the last track in the album, written by the one of the main writers in the group, the guitarist, uh, Patterson Hood, and very um, gravelly-voiced but effective singer. And it's uh, over eight minutes, or actually it's just round around that, actually. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but it's sort of the epic finale of the album, Act Two, as they dub it. So we're going to play Angels and Fuselage, which is, of course, talking about the um, almost surreal moments leading up to when the crash happened, where they realized they were going down and that they might not make it, and a few of them, of course, didn't. So, you know, this album has tracks like Ronnie and Neil talking about Ronnie Van Zant and his friendly rivalry with Neil Young. There was mutual respect for each other, that kind of thing. And talking about George Wallace and, you know, Cassie, as I mentioned, Cassie Gaines. Shut Up and Get on the Plane is their name to have a track. Greenville to Baton Rouge describes where they were supposed to fly to and from. And then, of course, this, the final track on it, Southern Rock Opera. Great release by the Drive-By Truckers, Angels and Fuselage. Back in 2001 here on the Sound of Groove Podcast. Here they are.
All right, there was a dramatic Angels and Fuselage by uh, the Drive-By Truckers with Patterson Hood's impassioned, extremely gravelly vocals to kind of add to this sort of weight of it all a little bit. I mean, talking about that subject matter of the fateful plane crash involving the band Leonard Skinner. So that about sums it up. That wraps up the part two of Come Fly With Me theme that closes out 2018. I'm glad if you listened to all the episodes this year, I'm glad you've been along for the ride. If not... You can catch up on it, but hopefully you've uh, had a great time listening to Sound of Group Podcast in 2018, and we'll be back in 2019 with some more great musical tidbits and themes. So until then, good listening. <laughs>